God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Continuing in our study of the Ten Commandments, and uh, we are on the Seventh Commandment now, uh, and I'd like to invite us to pray together as we uh, begin. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We need him now. Send him in no small measure, pour out your soul. For strength, for comfort, for wisdom, for truth, for grace, for healing, for conviction, for humbling, for encouragement, all these things. You can do all these things simultaneously and weaving through each of our hearts according to our needs. So come now, we invite you to speak through your word as it is preached. Help me in all my weakness and limitation. Do more than we're able to do for ourselves in all our human limitations and do this now for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're taking a, a close look at the Ten Commandments this season, the Ten Commandments, that's by the Bible's summary of God's moral law. And I want to acknowledge that as we've been moving through these different commandments, taking them one by one, that some people here, as you've listened to it, you, you may be feeling, well, gosh, why are we going through this exercise? The Ten Commandments, aren't they outdated? Aren't they irrelevant to life? They seem like such an arbitrary list. In fact, some of you might have even been saying to yourself, might say to yourself today, I, I don't feel I need the Ten Commandments. I just respect people's rights and try to be a good person. Well, you know, you just named two commandments. And in fact, you've got a list too. Your list might just be a little bit short. I don't mean that snarkily at all. I, I just want to point out that every single one of us lives by some list of commands that you live by, that you expect other people to live by. Everybody's got a list of commandments, even if it's don't judge people, call your mother, don't drink and drive, and for heaven's sake, stand on the right side of the metro escalator that you're walking That might be the rules you live by. Everybody's got a moral code. The only question is whether that code is true to reality, whether it's coherent, whether it's comprehensive, covers enough of life, whether it's actually authoritative, and whether it is satisfying to the human soul. What's the code that you live by? Where does your morality actually come from? And of course, we need to be quick to propose, to, to, to point out that the Bible's proposal is not only that the Ten Commandments are all those things, true and coherent and satisfying and, and authoritative, but also that the Ten Commandments, in the Bible's eyes, is more than just a moral code. It's actually a portrait that God gives to us of what it looks like to be a whole human being, to love God and to love your neighbor. The Ten Commandments reveal God's vision to us of how life works best in genuine worship, with a commitment to justice, 
and with a humble commitment to the love of neighbor. It exposes how desperately we need grace because of all the ways that we fall short of these laws of love, the ways that we are unable to follow God's word without God's help. Every study of the Ten Commandments should humble us, therefore, and drive us to Jesus. And speaking of him, in the end, the Ten Commandments are an invitation to become beautiful like Jesus, to learn to love like he loves, and to live a life that reflects his moral beauty. You see, our study here is not just a recitation of things that you do right and wrong. It's an invitation for you to be more beautiful. Do you want that? Don't you want that? To put on the beauty of Jesus. Today we're studying the seventh commandment that contains just five simple, forceful words, two words in the original Hebrew, you shall not commit adultery. Well, what does that mean? We're going to look at this in two parts. First, what the seventh commandment is for, and then what the seventh commandment is against. What it's for and what it's against in two parts. Let's take a look. What is the seventh commandment for? What is it saying yes to? What is it seeking to promote in us and through us? And the first thing that we need to grapple with here is that the seventh commandment is for sexual wholeness. Sexual wholeness. The Bible tells us that sex is a gift. It is good. It's powerful. It's a blessing when handled rightly, in the right way, the right time, and with the right person. See, the reason why the Bible talks about sex so much, in fact, if we pay attention, is not because it's bad, but because it's powerful. And because it is so commonly, powerfully misused. But at the heart of the attention that God gives to this matter is because he's given it to us as a gift to be stewarded. Sexual intimacy was designed by God to be exchanged and enjoyed within the security and vulnerability of the covenant of marriage. That's how God designed it, for it to be exchanged and enjoyed within the security and the vulnerability of the covenant of marriage. I want to explain and unpack that a little bit more of what this sexual wholeness looks like as it's alluded to and given to us through this commandment. See, sex, of course, in the Bible's eyes, is a means by which new human life is created, of course, procreation. But more than that, and maybe even more fundamentally than that, is the understanding that sex creates and reinforces a deep intimacy, a oneness that is shared between two people. Jesus himself taught us especially when he quotes in Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis 2, telling us that the purpose of sex was, according to God's design, to become one flesh, two bodies joining together as if one body 
And this, of course, is more than just a physical depiction or description of what happens in sexual intimacy, but rather it's telling us that in that act itself, we're given a profound visual symbol, even a, a kind of object lesson of a comprehensive union that God calls people in marriage to enjoy and to steward. The author and pastor Tim Keller, I think, explains this helpfully when he says, sex is the physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all other areas, economic, legal, personal, psychological, created by the marriage covenant. In other words, it, it's meant to not only strengthen, but also depict the kind of comprehensive, all-life unity and oneness and harmony that's meant to be enjoyed and experienced within the security and within the confines of the promises that are exchanged in marriage. And this is by God's design. I know some people might struggle with this idea of sex belonging within marriage, and so perhaps to help you, let me explain that this is common to the way that we understand a lot of things in life, that there are things that have design parameters, right, that you can't just use any way you wish simply because you can if you want it to be used rightly and healthily. Take, for example, a car. A car, of course, is, is an instrument of great blessing. It, it can transport you not only from one place to another, but even to one person to another. It brings you into the blessing of relationship. Cars can be a gift. It can even give to you the gift of life in the case of an ambulance, transportation to rescue your life. What a blessing, a gift that cars are, but cars also have parameters. You need to use it according to its design. As you know, a car can also be a deadly weapon. When? If you're going too fast, if you're going out of control, if you're driving on a sidewalk, where pedestrians can be hurt, harmed, and even killed. You see, a lot of people think this idea of sex belonging within the security of marriage feels repressive or regressive, but in fact, it's simply a matter of design parameters. How has God made sex to be engaged? And you see, experiencing or engaging in sex outside of the covenant of marriage is like a car speeding down a side. There are ways in which it can be enjoyed, and in fact, again, it can be a blessing and a gift, and it is. But outside of the designated parameters, it can even be an instrument of death. You see, this is built right into the very heart of what it means. God has made it in this way. Let me put it to you another way. Sex tells another person, even without words, I belong to you completely, exclusively, permanently. Did you know that? 
There's an unspoken message that's in fact communicated in the experience of sex. I belong to you, give myself to you completely. No exceptions, no hidden corners, with complete nakedness of life, emotionally, financially, legally, personally, exclusively, and as long as we both shall live. And so if that's true about what you might call the logic of sex according to the Bible, the meaning of it, then I want you to notice a few implications of this understanding of it. So first, within marriage, this is how sex is a renewal of such promises where again and again it is communicated to a spouse, I belong to you, completely, totally, uh, without exception. It's exclusively and permanently. There's a, a promise that's renewed and there's a bond in the marriage that's strengthened by this act. You see, this is what sexual wholeness is meant to be in marriage. And notice also that adultery then is rightly understood as the deepest of betrayals. Because it's the offer of whole life exclusive commitment to another person who's not your spouse. Outside of marriage, then we can also understand that sex, again, according to the Bible's logic, sex outside of marriage is at best an inconsistency and at worst a lie. You see, because built into the very meaning of it, according to God, is this wholehearted promise that's made, and that's renewed. Along with physical nakedness, is supposed to accompany an emotional nakedness. <laughs> and so until you're willing to say, no holds barred, no skeletons in the closet, no dark corners, I give all of myself to you, my whole heart, until you're ready to do that, you shouldn't be sharing your bodies with one another. This is why it makes no sense. In fact, it's perjury before your partner and before God to say, I'll give you my body, but not my heart. I'll give you my body, but not my bank account. I'll give you my body, but not everything that belongs to me. Do you understand here? Right outside of the security of marriage. It's at best an inconsistency, at worst a lie. And too many of us have relationships built on lies. God is inviting us to something better, something more beautiful. You see, the seventh commandment is not just saying no to things, it's saying yes to things. And what it's saying yes to is a protection and a promotion of this beautiful sexual wholeness where this kind of intimacy runs free and flourishes within the proper conditions for which it was made, which is the secure promises of a covenant of marriage. A whole life commitment that was made within which that commitment is renewed physically and emotionally again and again and again. Of course, as we understand the Bible and the way it talks about this command, the seventh commandment is not only 
for married people, it's really for all of us. That maybe already started maybe checking out a little bit, saying, hey, it, it, if this is just talking about adultery proper, uh, properly speaking, then maybe this isn't for me, I'm not married. Well, listen, we're going to talk about the ways it has an expansive reach across all of our lives. We've already talked about how it has implications even for those who are unmarried, it's for all of us. Hebrews 13.4 says this very clearly, let marriage be held in honor among all. That means not only supporting married couples, it also means promoting this, the Bible's vision of sex and marriage across the community, across the city and the world. In other words, the seventh commandment calls us to be a community that acknowledges not only this vision, but also how far we all fall short of it. It invites us to acknowledge that every single one of us, every one of us, is sexually broken. The seventh commandment calls us to grow as a community where sexual abstinence, in line with God's design, depending on your station in life, is actually cherished and practiced joyfully, where chaste single people find family and fulfillment in church community, where faithfulness in this area of life is talked about, examined, and supported by friendship and by instruction and by honest exchange. In a community where the seventh commandment is understood to call us to be a church that also promotes sexual healing for those who have been wounded, that protects those who have been abused. In a church that makes the community an inhospitable place for those who seek to harm others in this way. God calls us to be a community, not just individuals, but a community in line with this command as an embodied expression of the very heart of God. Which brings me to this. What is the seventh commandment for more than anything? It's for giving you and me a vision of God. You say, how is that so? We're just talking about five little words here. How does this show us, God? I want you to notice that in this command, as with all the commands, what precedes it is verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20, where before God said a word about what people are obligated to do before him and before neighbor, he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have loved you I have covenanted with you. I have made myself one with you. You see, when we understand the relationship of sex to marriage as the Bible talks about it, then we begin to see, even in a command like this, our relationship to God. The God of the Bible is a God who marries himself to his people, who doesn't stand far off, non-committal like the rest of us, but a God who enters in, 
Even in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, where instructions are given to husband and wife, the apostle says this, again quoting Genesis 2, when marriage and sex were first given as a blessing to the man and woman, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Because marital love gives us a little picture of the love of Christ for his people. We find in this commandment, we discover in it a God who actually withholds nothing from those whom he loves, where he gives everything with complete spiritual oneness, gives everything to his people. He shares everything of his with you. Yes, his heart. Yes, his bank account, as it were. Yes, his promises. As Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, the God of the gospel is not a one-night stand God. He's a God of marital love, of pledging love, of commitment love. He loves us with a permanent and exclusive Love. Just as Hebrews 13, verse 5 tells us, God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do you know God like that? You see, the seventh commandment is pointing us to that God. It's reminding us to see that God in the words of Scripture, God who's not only loved us like that, but loved us with this kind of exposure and nakedness. Can we put it that way? A God who loves us with vulnerability. Vulnerability. The Son of God who came to this world, born into this world, even as a fragile baby. Vulnerability. Who made himself mortal, hurtable. In fact, who allowed himself to be betrayed, even by those whom he loved. Do you know that the Old Testament and the New Testament likens our sin and idolatry to adultery? In other words, every single one of us as sinners is a spiritual adulterer, betraying God on the regular, promising Him one thing, and yet breaking His heart in the next instant. Yet He loved us so, as a heartbroken yet long-suffering spouse, are you coming to know the heart of God that led him even to die for us and for our sin, even including our sexual sin? Do you know this God? You see, because when you begin to see the beauty of this God revealed even in this language of adultery and our commands not to commit it, do you understand that this is an invitation in this command to become like in ourselves, to become a reflection of this beauty of God we're called to be like God. So have you experienced this kind of love from Him? And are you ready to extend this kind of love to one another? You see, the motive that's built into this command it's important for us to hear this. The motive that's built into this command is not guilt. It is not fear. But it's love. It's an experience 
of love from God himself. And out of the power of that transformative experience, being freshly committed, even pledged to being just like him. Will you? This is what the seventh commandment is for. What is it then against? What does the seventh commandment say no to? Here we go, really quickly. The first thing it says no to is just wrong views of sex and sexuality, views that run counter to the way that the Bible talks about it. For example, there's the view of sex as just being a natural appetite. You know, sort of the same as any other natural bodily activity, like eating and sleeping. You know, if you're hungry, then you eat. Right? If you have a desire, then you just need to fulfill it. If you desire sex, you need to sex. And this is sort of the way in which our world commonly, but really going back from the beginning of time, has always seen sexual intimacy, and that being that it's just your body. It's just an appetite, so you can do what you want with it. Here's a, a, another distorted view of sex, and that is sex as vice. Uh, just this misunderstanding of sex as just being an inherently bad thing. That it's dirty or degrading, a, a, a necessary evil that might be permissible for the purposes of having children, but you certainly better not enjoy it. Right? And this, of course, is a view a view that over the centuries has always crept in again and again in the church, even against the testimony of Scripture, in which God, by the Holy Spirit, inspired a whole book called the Song of Psalms, with overtures of love and sexual intimacy that would make most traditional people blush. Why? Because God says no to this view of sex as being inherently a vice. A third wrong view that the Bible corrects sex as spirituality. And that is this, this experience or use of sex as kind of a, for a transcendent experience. It's why from the beginning there's always been a religious association with practices of sex and debauchery, right? Old idolatrous cults, whether even in the ancient world, but even till today, where there's some association with the, uh, uh, taking oneself, body and mind, into a higher plane by the activity of sex. And the Bible, the Bible would say, certainly, uh, sexual intimacy is more than just physical contact. It brings one's heart and emotions. There's even a spiritual dimension to it. But in no way should it be used in this sort of cultic, religious manner in which it's often performed. And then, of course, there's sex of self-expression, where you're sort of called to liberate your primal instincts, right? Sex is basically an exercise of freedom, and a symbol of freedom. As long as it's safe, go ahead. Consent is basically the only moral standard. But the more you exercise this freedom, the more mature you are as a human being. Relatedly, is sex as self-fulfillment, which is the pursuit of intimacy in this fashion for the sake of happiness or for the sake of self-image. I want to be viewed as a certain kind of person, or I want to experience 
a kind of love, the confusion that often comes in equating sexual intimacy with love itself. We've already talked about the ways in which the Bible talks about a quite de different definition of sexual sin, but we need to also identify the way in which this command and the way that the Bible as a whole talks about sexuality as being quite different from each of these erroneous views. What else is it that the seventh commandment is against? Well, adultery, of course. We can talk about that briefly. The sharing of sexual intimacy with someone besides your own spouse. Adultery breaks the bond of oneness. Does violence, in fact, to this intimate and vulnerable bond? Adultery is tragically common. According to one recent survey, 20% of married men, that's one in five, and 13% of married women, that's one in eight, admit to having an adulterous affair. Social scientists have also pointed out that infidelity rates have been steadily increasing over the last 50 years. I think personally that's because of some of the evolving views behind some of the things we just talked about. Understanding sex as self-expression, as self-fulfillment, and so forth, that is pushing and driving infidelity rates higher and higher, steadily over the last 50 years. I want to mention, because it's important to point out, that there are spiritual dynamics behind adultery. It's not simply a moment slip up and not simply a matter of physical contact with someone that you shouldn't have contact with. Sure, there might be the presence of untamed sexual desire, but almost always there's also an unhealthy relationship to power. A person in a relationship who believes it's their right to take, a person that believes that they are entitled to subjugate, to control. There's often a self-centeredness that can even sometimes be described as narcissism, this idea of all arrangements and relationships really do exist for my own benefit and pleasure. And oftentimes, there is a mark of anger and resentment in adulterous relationships. A person that turns away from one spouse, committed covenant partner, because of bitterness, because of anger stirring in the heart. There's a lot of dynamics here, but the point here is simply to say there's much for us to be honest about, to take inventory of, to talk about even as we try to grow and as the kind of community I talked about before that grapples with sexual wholeness and health together. If you want to say a few things to those who have yourselves suffered the betrayal of adultery. If you yourself have suffered from this pain, we love you and we grieve with you. What you're experiencing, you know, it is not just simply emotional pain, it's something that's rightly understood as trauma. Something more deep, something more lasting. It's why many speak about adultery as a form of abuse and theft, when you take into account the actual impact 
that adultery has in the victim. Dear sister, dear brother, we invite you to take your time. Not rushing towards forgiveness and not expecting healing to come overnight. You do need support, counseling, therapy, community, friends, spiritual leaders in the church. You know you, you cannot weather this on your own. I want you to know that the law of God grants you permission to divorce. According to Matthew 5.32, and the heart of God invites you to consider the possibility, by God's mercy, of reconciliation. But it is a reconciliation that would be possible only if your spouse bears the fruit of repentance and a trust that's rebuilt over time and with many tears. Dear brother, dear sister, God weeps with you. And we long to with you as well. If you are, on the other hand, someone who has committed adultery, I want to say to you, please repent if you haven't already. You have betrayed your spouse. You have betrayed your God. And turn not only from the specific incident or incidents that led to your sin and betrayal, but turn also from the constellation of sins and idols that lay underneath it, animating that act. In other words, the sins of self-centeredness, perhaps narcissism, perhaps of anger, perhaps of bitterness, perhaps of power and control, all of these things that need to be brought into the light that you might be rescued from. God is ready to forgive you, and yet he also loves you too much not to confront you. If you desire restoration with your spouse, you must be ready to endure a long, painful process, one that centers not you, but the spouse whom you injure and one that will involve for you a kind of conversion. Bringing a holy new life from among what's dead. You will need to be careful of mistaking your feelings of shame for true repentance. In your acknowledgement of wrongdoing for genuine confession of sin. And you, dear friend, will need to spiritually die if you want your marriage to live. God can give you grace for all these things and more if you earnestly seek Him. What is the seventh commandment against? It's against adultery. But it's also against even Briefly and, and, and quickly. The Bible does tell us that this commandment also includes 
injunctions against lust. Lust is a word that's often misused as if it only can refer to sexual sin or immorality. Lust in the Bible simply means inordinate desire, wanting something too much or in the wrong way. Too much to the point of becoming an idol of confidence. But Jesus himself tells us that this commandment points us to not just our behaviors outside of ourselves, but the heart within. Matthew 5, 27. Jesus' words, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus commands that we pay attention to our desires and our imaginations. Dear friends, I, I, I want to invite you to pay attention to the desires and the imaginations of your hearts. And to not let yourself off so easily to say, oh well, oh well. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Of course, he's not literally calling us to self-mutilation, but he is calling us to regard, have a high regard for the severity of this sin, the way in which it can corrupt our hearts, distort our self-image, our image of God, and our treatment of one another. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in explicating this command, it points to avoiding, quote, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and of course this was written in the in the early 17th century, there might be cultural, social context that we need to consider here. But I will say, we do need to pay attention to songs that we put in our ears that download ideas and words and images into our hearts. I'm not saying simply avoiding songs that got that little icon, letter E, whatever it might be. I'm talking about paying attention to the way that we are being formed by the words, the gestures, and the noises, you know, that many songs are uploading into, it's just a song, don't you know, or forms by our music. Will you at least examine it? At least raise the question. Or the shows that you watch, or the movies that you see, Again, I'm not just calling for a legalistic or prudish censoring of things per se, but I am talking about living on your knees, humble enough to recognize the way that these images and scenes can, in fact, and do, in fact, distort your understanding of the glory of the vision that God has given to us in Scripture of sexual holiness. And this is true, I need to say, even of those of us who are married. Just because you're married doesn't give you your pass. Just to look at everything carefree, not thinking that it'll impact even the ways in which you believe, seek, and engage with your own spouse. Again, this isn't a mere call to censorship. It's a call to humility. By humility, I mean what you may need to set aside or close your eyes to in your life might be different from your brother, from your sister. But will you be honest with God? 
There's lust, of course, and that relates to also pornography, which of course involves acting out adultery or sinful sex in your heart, in your imaginations. We talked about this several weeks ago in our study of the book of Revelation. As mentioned before, this also touches on sex outside of marriage or promiscuous living, sort of being overtaken by habits of hookup culture, right? Living for the moment and living for the night. I want to just reiterate the point from earlier. God is calling you to a kind of human integrity to live with your whole life being invested in committed relationships. Right? That the nature of sex being engaged or performed outside of the security of marriage, it's not just because it's, well, that's beneath you. It's because it is taking out of its original setting a gift and a blessing, stripping it from what is supposed to be a whole life commitment without restriction, giving yourself to a person totally, exclusively, and permanently. C.S. Lewis famously explains this principle with these words talking about the way in which we ingest food. He said the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong with sexual pleasure any more than about the, sex, the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting, by chewing things and spitting them out again. Here's a call not simply to extract the experience of pleasure from what that's meant to be conjoined to in a whole life commitment to another person. And I need to say, this isn't just speaking about premarital sex, but also postmarital sex. I just need to lodge this in our discussion here as the rates and rise of promiscuity, even among the elderly, in communities and in various homes, is apparently on the rise as well. As though to say, once I'm free from the bonds of marriage because of the passing of my spouse, therefore I am free from the law of God. No, this stands for, for you if you're 72 as much as if you are 22. Also included in this command, of course, is a low view of marriage that results in sort of a frivolous embrace of divorce. Bible certainly does give some stipulations and conditions upon which marriages can be exited even before the grieving heart of God. Yet too often, a low view of marriage accompanied by a low view of the bond that's created by sexual intimacy makes us sort of flippant about the ways in which we intend to exit marriages by easy forms of divorce. 
also included in this command, of course, we need to say, is bondage, discipline, sadism, and masochism, BDSM, which also is on the rise in this time. Where the Bible does not see in its whole and beautiful portrait of marriage any conjoining of violence and pain is being part of the experience of erotic pleasure in the exchange of sexual union. Also on the rise is the popularity of polyamory and open relationships. This, of course, very fundamentally gets into questions around whether one can have multiple partners when the sex is meant to be shared exclusively with a single partner in the covenant of marriage on a lifetime basis. The answer is no, there is no room for polyamory. I don't need to be simplistic about it. There's much more to be taught about this question, but it needs to be established in the Christian community of what the limits of these relationships really need to be. I'm going to close this, friends, because the list can and should go on and on as we explore, again, not only negatively, but positively, what this commandment is getting at. I want to turn our attention again to the guiding principle of all of this. It's not just, well, tell me what the rules are, or I don't like what the rules are. The question is, who is God? And how can our lives begin to reflect the kind of covenanting God that we find in the Bible and in the Gospel? A God who gives his heart exclusively to his people, who does not break his promises, who refuses to betray, in fact, even in assumes betrayal upon himself with broken-hearted love, renews his affection, his commitment again and again. And again, a God who refuses to be a hook of God or a one-night stand God, a God who gives to us miracle love and promises, I'll never leave you, I'll never forgive, I'll never forsake you, I will forgive you, I will enter in, I will be by your side forever and ever into eternity. This is your God, so how are you going to Behold the logic of the gospel. Let's be like Jesus, dear friends. That's your invitation. Let's pray. God help us. And I pray that you would give us wisdom to just be able to see insight into how all this applies to us personally. Help us not to leave this in the abstract. Every person here would bring about conviction, at least in one area, one way. But I pray you would make this a joy. And be a joy to live in a chaste manner before you. A joy to honor marriage. A joy to see the beauty of your design and sex. Make it a joy in this whole process, this whole growth journey. But God, do this in us with your chastening hand at work. Maybe some of us need to repent. Maybe some of us really need to get serious about some area that we've just been leaving wide open for sin and temptation to run wild. When really what you want us to do is put boundaries around our lives in a healthy way so that grace and love and the power of God can run wild. So do that in our midst. Heal us. Strengthen us. Humble us. Encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.